Morning. Um, as everybody starts uh, piling in, I uh, just wanted to say welcome back to Breakfast with the Chiefs for the 2019-2020 uh, season. Uh, it should be a very good and interesting season, and um, we're going to get started in about a minute or so. Um, just a, a couple quick housekeeping notes. For those of you who have not attended for Breakfast with the Chiefs, a fair number of you have before, uh, there should be some time at the end for uh, Q&A. I will have a mic and I will run around and uh, answer your questions, or sorry, not answer your questions, uh, give you the mic to allow you to ask your questions. Uh, and before that though, um, these events are not possible without the support of our sponsors. So uh, very quickly, uh, supporting today's event, the uh, Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement, uh, the Canadian Institute of Health Information, Medtronic, uh, Navari Health, and of course, thank you for the facility, uh, Sinai Hospital. And uh, without further delay, Chris, it's all yours. Well, thanks very much, and thanks to everybody for, uh, for coming this morning and uh, helping us kick off this uh, season of Breakfast with the Chiefs. Uh, my name's Chris Simpson, I'm from uh, Kingston, uh, and uh, I thought it would be important to um, uh, start off with some disclosures. Um, I am the Chief Medical Information Officer for Novari Health, which is a company that, uh, uh, that has uh, uh, developed and uh, uh, has deployed uh, several uh, wait time uh, solutions uh, and uh, wait time management solutions, virtual care. Um, I chair Ontario uh, Quality Standards Committee for HQO, which has um, some uh, implications for this talk. Um, and I offer these all really more to just give you a sense of the vantage point uh, that I'm coming from and, and the things that have in influenced me over the years. Uh, I'm the Vice Dean Clinical in the Queen's Faculty of Health Sciences. Uh, I'm the President-Elect of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, uh, former Chair of the Canadian Wait Time Alliance, which many of you may remember. Uh, and uh, most of the time, I'm an academic and clinical cardiologist in heart rhythm disorders. Uh, I was also, I neglected to put this here, but I was also a, uh, a former president of the Canadian Medical Association. So uh, to start off, I'd, I'd like to start by sharing my own experiences um, with wait times in our system because there's a long history of long wait times in Canada for medically necessary care. And I think it's instructive to review some of this history to help us understand where we are today. My very first exposure to the medical wait times issue was uh, way back at the beginning of my medical career. Uh, and it's hard to remember now because cardiac care in Ontario is now really world leading in, in many ways and it's so much better now than it was then. But in the late 80s, the access um, to bypass surgery, cardiac bypass surgery in Ontario was absolutely abysmal. Uh, we had uh, patients being sent to uh, Detroit and to Ohio for surgery. Uh, people were dying on the wait list, um, all faceless people, I suppose, for, for quite a while, uh, until somebody named Charles Coleman died while waiting for bypass surgery after having been postponed 11 times. Uh, and that was the event that, for whatever reason, uh, generated sufficient public outrage to trigger some political action. And so the Cardiac Care Network was born and was given a mandate to monitor and uh, report on wait times for cardiac surgery. They set standards, uh, they established triage categories, uh, they established wait time benchmarks for different triage categories, and uh, resources were provided to monitor uh, the adherence to these standards. And then over time, the outcomes actually started to improve. Uh, the, the system goal was to get the, uh, the mortality rate on the wait list down to 0.5% or less, and it was between 2 and 3% at its worst. And uh, even though the complexity and the average age and the, the, the sickness of people um, got uh, uh, more and more complex, uh, the wait times did go down and the, the mortality on the wait list uh, did uh, go below 0.5%. So this uh, has been an unqualified success. It, it was established as a, as a world leader, the, one of the only, or the first one of its kind in the world. But it took tremendous time, tremendous resources, and uh, a very single-minded uh, commitment to improving the experience for bypass surgery patients. But 
Only about 1% of all people with cardiac disease need bypass surgery. So what about the other 99% of people with heart disease um, in Ontario and in Canada? What about all of the tests and the procedures uh, that they need? So I'm a heart rhythm specialist. I look after patients with electrical disorders uh, in the heart. And from my vantage point, the huge focus on bypass surgery is noble and as successful as it was, didn't really go far enough because my patients were dying on the waiting list too. And this is one, uh, Mrs. L.S. She was 49, mother of two, grandmother of one, uh, had been unfortunate enough to have a heart attack a couple of years earlier that was caused by a blockage in just exactly the wrong place, just bad luck, right at the top of her left anterior descending coronary artery, left her with a huge uh, scar on the, on the front wall of her heart. And the problem with scar on heart is, is that um, that places people at very high risk for sudden death from, from cardiac arrest. In fact, 35,000 Canadians die from this every year. And so what she needed was an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or, or ICD, which is a pacemaker-like device implanted in the left upper chest, and it monitors the heart 24-7, and in the event that you're destined to have a cardiac arrest, it will detect that, it charges itself up, and, um, and uh, delivers a shock. So there's a robust literature supporting this, uh, robust guidelines uh, supporting this. Um, but this was now 2003, and uh, wait lists were uh, many months and often years uh, for these to be implanted. And uh, people died while they were waiting. Not, not just a few, but a lot of people died uh, while they were waiting for these things. And this is the story that motivated me to become interested in, in weight issues. And it's important to sort of pause and just reflect on uh, why um, this was so devastating for us who cared for these patients. And the best way I can explain it is that if, if a patient with heart disease dies and you look back in retrospect and you say, well, they could have been on a little bit of a higher dose of beta blocker, or maybe I didn't have the statin dose quite high enough, um, we can think about these in a, in a system way, but it's hard to sort of attribute a specific decision like that to the death of the patient. In other words, the patient didn't die because their Lipitor dose was 40 milligrams instead of uh, 80 milligrams. But when someone waiting for a defibrillator drops dead from an arrhythmia, I know that they died because and only because they didn't have uh, this implanted. Um, so it was an extraordinarily powerful motivator to do something at the policy level. And uh, you often hear researchers talk about, uh, you know, the clinical researchers, they'll say, well, I saw a patient, there was an unanswered problem, it, it motivated me to pose a question in a research, uh, for a research trial, uh, I, I designed, we carried out the trial, we got the answer, and then I could apply the result to my patient. You know, very, very compelling story. But in this case, there, there really was no knowledge gap. We knew uh, what the problem was and what the treatment was, but what was missing was policy that could deliver the treatment in a, in a timely way. And so um, for me, uh, over my career, it's been stories like this that have driven my interest in, in changing the way we do things rather than um, looking for new knowledge. And so we, we assembled ourselves um, and um, we established a wait time benchmark for, for a defibrillator implantation that still stands today as the gold standard. And we just took a very simple approach. Uh, we said, well, if the standard for bypass patients is that we don't want any more than one in 200 of them to die on the wait list uh, while they're waiting, then uh, we can calculate what the wait list would have to be for a defibrillator patient because we know from the trials as the, as the curves separate between uh, placebo and, uh, and defibrillator, we know how many will die over, over a certain period of time. And so if we accept the premise that we want uh, people waiting for a defibrillator to die at no greater rate than patients waiting for bypass, then the wait uh, time benchmark should be eight weeks. So in other words, if everybody waited eight weeks, uh, the mortality on the wait list would be 0.5%. So this benchmark was rapidly adopted across the country. It uh, informed resource allocation and informed performance management targets. Uh, and then we just kept going. We said, okay, let's, um, let's establish evidence-based wait time benchmarks for all heart rhythm procedures, uh, also known as um, electrophysiology procedures. And then uh, the uh, cardiovascular community mobilized further and we created a whole suite of wait time benchmarks for all cardiovascular uh, consultations and tests and procedures, uh, from diagnostic testing to heart failure, 
uh, from, um, from stenting to bypass, from primary prevention to, uh, to rehab. And so this developed, um, uh, we were the first uh, specialty in the country to sort of establish uh, medically determined wait time benchmarks uh, as opposed to um, government determined uh, wait time benchmarks uh, which had been in place beforehand. So uh, do you remember these guys? Uh, um, so some of them may look familiar. <clears throat> so as luck would have it, the Prime Minister of the day, uh, Paul Martin, and the Premiers were negotiating a new health accord. So this is now 2004. Uh, and a big part of this was, uh, many of you will remember, a $5 billion wait time fund because wait times were sort of the premier um, uh, political health issue of the day. And this led to the birth of the Canadian Wait Time Alliance, which was a federation of uh, specialty societies representing the so-called Big Five. Uh, these were the five priority areas that were targeted by the Wait Time Fund for improvement, and they included cardiac care, specifically bypass surgery, uh, site restoration, meaning cataracts, uh, cancer care, and particularly uh, radiation therapy, uh, imaging, CT and MRI, and uh, hip and knee replacements. So these became known as, as the Big Five. And uh, why these were chosen, um, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not, uh, um, I suspect it was a combination of political and uh, the fact that there was some, uh, you know, these were high profile kind of conditions. Um, so, so I was there as the cardiology community representative and uh, here we are meeting with the, the uh, Prime Minister and uh, uh, Health Minister Dosange at that time. Uh, and together we developed medically determined benchmarks for all of these tests and procedures, published them in peer-reviewed journals, uh, and then we began reporting on provinces' adherence to these benchmarks using the province's own uh, publicly reported data. Um, the government soon changed. You, you recall uh, Mr. Merton had a minority government and, and uh, uh, he was defeated uh, by Mr. Harper and the Conservatives formed a majority government. And um, early on, it, it's, uh, by the end of his term, uh, Mr. Harper wasn't interested in health care so much anymore. But at the beginning, uh, he was very interested, actually, in picking up on this. And um, what they decided to do was frame it as a wait time guarantee. And um, they decided to offer uh, some resources to provinces who would adopt one of, uh, one of our benchmarks um, and uh, commit to adherence to those benchmarks. Uh, and uh, they, could, they could choose whichever one they want. Um, so um, what happened was uh, all of these provinces chose uh, uh, radiation therapy as their target and uh, the cynical view might be that that was because they were already at or near their, their targets uh, for radiation therapy. Um, uh, and um, afterwards, I think after there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, movement or tangible improvement in wait times for other things, uh, the, the notion of the wait time guarantee sort of uh, faded into the political background. So over time, um, we, we continued to grow, and we expanded to 17 national specialty societies. We also brought in the uh, College of Family Physicians, uh, the CMA, that's the Canadian Medical Association, not the Country Music Association, uh, served as the secretariat. And together, we established and published over 1,000 wait time benchmarks, medically determined wait time benchmarks, for a broad array of, of consultations and tests and procedures spanning the entire care uh, continuum. So everything from mental health to emergency department visits uh, uh, to uh, waits uh, for a colonoscopy. And uh, we kept publishing our annual report cards. Uh, we pressed provinces to establish wait time websites and now every province has a wait time website uh, where uh, information is available to the public. We graded them on the quality of their websites. And every year we generated uh, quite a lot of press actually that had usually several days of, of hang time. And uh, it was typically the report was discussed on the floors of legislatures across the country uh, as well as in the House of Commons. And I have a few good pictures of uh, opposition uh, members in particular holding up a copy of our report uh, as they spoke. So it, it was uh, for several years a fairly uh, high profile event. Um, here's a screenshot from Ontario's uh, wait time website today. Uh, you can see the format is easy to read. Um, uh, right away, within five seconds, you get a sense that uh, performance in this area is generally good. This happens to be from the page for uh, access to bypass surgery. 95% uh, of all cardiac surgery patients were treated within the target time. And then it gives some extra data on the different triage categories. So if you're urgent or um, semi-urgent or, um, or scheduled. 
Uh, and uh, it's very reassuring, I think, for members of the public to see this kind of performance uh, in a truly province-wide system. Here's a snapshot from the Emergency Wait Times website in Alberta. Uh, they provide actually real-time information on emergency department wait times so uh, patients can actually uh, make an informed choice as, uh, as where to go. So if you want to wait a minute or an hour and 30 minutes, you can go to Rocky View, but if you want to be seen in 51 minutes, you go to Peter Lougheed. Um, but, but underneath all of these successes is a not-so-successful uh, subtext. And, and this is a complex slide, and it's not intended to be read in its entirety. But what I'd like you to focus on are the colors. Uh, so this, this is a table from our final report in, in 2015. Down the left side of the table uh, are various medical services, so pediatric surgery, endoscopy, mental health consultations, cataract surgery, many others. The second column lists the benchmark, so this is the time in which the service should be delivered to most people. Across the top are the 10 provinces, so they're all being graded. And then we delivered letter grades. So they got an A if between 80 and 100% of, of people were treated within the benchmark time. They got a B if it was 70 to 80%. They got a C if it was 60 to 70% and so on, like the grades you would get in school. Um, but now look at the colors. So green means they did better than last year. Yellow means they did the same as last year. Uh, red means they did worse than last year. Uh, but orange means there were no data available to measure. Um, so not a single province was measuring wait times to see a psychiatrist for major depression, for example. Uh, not a single province was measuring access to consultation and treatment for chronic pain. Uh, only two provinces were measuring wait times for pediatric surgery. So a sea of orange, meaning that no one was really measuring and reporting performance at all. And we decided to, to display it in this way to highlight the point that uh, although uh, we've had tremendous successes in the, in, uh, in the big five areas, and particularly Ontario did very well getting wait times down for those big five, that reflects the experience of a very small proportion of Ontarians. Most patients are still living in this world of, of orange from an access to care point of view. So this is the so-called balloon effect, and this is a bit controversial, but um, this is the notion that when we squeeze a few care pathways into compliance, we inadvertently create problems in others. And uh, this, in fact, can be argued to be an obligate consequence of a system uh, with fixed resources or a system that doesn't fundamentally change the way that it does business. So in Canada, our focus on the big five did indeed uh, per, uh, improve performance in most provinces, particularly Ontario, but it created the illusion that we were improving overall. Uh, we didn't pay attention to the other areas that were not improving or were getting worse, or even more worrisome, uh, the areas that were getting worse precisely because some of the other areas were getting better. So here's a little snapshot for you. This is from my hospital. Uh, and you may recognize this from social media because unfortunately, it, or fortunately maybe, it went viral. But this is a form letter sent from a specialist office to a referring family doctor informing the family doctor that the wait time for an appointment is approximately 4.5 years. Uh, and this is not unusual. Uh, this is not unusual. Um, here's another one from 2016 uh, from somewhere else uh, explaining that the patient won't be seen for three years. Um, and I put this up to show you the inhospitable language that's, that's in this. You can almost get inside their heads uh, as they wrote this because of the overwhelming sense of failure that they feel for not being able to serve patients better. So the caregivers lash out, basically saying, if you don't show up, you're going to the bottom of the list. Um, and this kind of thing really feeds the lack of a customer service vibe in healthcare in Canada. And it's also a major contributor to physician burnout. Um, and how's this for tone deaf when it comes to just general courtesy? Uh, if the person named on this computer-generated letter is deceased, please accept our sincere apologies. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's real. So the debate rages on. Uh, social media has picked it up, as you would imagine. Uh, here's Andre Picard's tweet that created a new hashtag called uh, hashtag Canada Waits. Uh, and I'd encourage you to check it out and just read all the outrageous stories and, uh, and anecdotes of people who've had uh, wait time experiences that have been less than perfect. Um, so as the discussion around the issue matured, it became 
increasingly clear that patient care experiences were not single wait time experiences. They were journeys that could be seen uh, from a wait time perspective at least as a series of transactions. In other words, it's not just about the wait to get your hip replaced, it's about the access to primary care in the first place, uh, the wait to access testing, the wait to access the specialist, the wait to access the procedure, the wait to access the rehabilitation or other recovery type services that people need en route to uh, recovery. These things constitute a, a series of, of care events which are punctuated by waits in between. And when you start to imagine healthcare experiences as journeys through a series of waits, then you start to see increasing disparities. Now here's one very simple look at how envisioning just two of those waits, um, in this case it's the wait from GP to specialist, also known as wait one, and then the wait from specialist to treatment, also known as wait two. And you can see how when you see this together, it, it magnifies the delta from a disparity point of view. So a patient wakes, waits 15 weeks in Ontario, for example, versus nearly 40 weeks in my home province of New Brunswick. Uh, it takes longer to see a specialist than it takes to get the whole experience uh, taken care of somewhere else. And so uh, when we start to um, put all of these care experiences together into a journey, we start to see a lot of disparities. And even within provinces, we found uh, with our work at the WTA, great disparities from one region to another, and even within Linz. Uh, disparities uh, and inequities are, are everywhere when it comes to access to care. Uh, I took a look at our uh, HIP wait lists in uh, southeastern Ontario three or four years ago, found a wait list of over a year for one surgeon and a wait list of three weeks for another in a hospital just 40 minutes away. And you have to ask the question, are patients aware of this? Um, were they offered a choice? Do they even know they have a choice? And I think we know um, the answer to those questions. So inequity is an important consideration when it comes to wait times. Um, there's an abundance of literature that shows even in robust public health systems like ours, there are tremendous inequities in access to care uh, for just about every kind of medical care. And in Canada, we kind of bristle at this notion a little bit because we like to believe and we buy into the mythology to some degree that we provide care based on need. But the real fact of the matter is that those who are able to advocate for themselves, those who know the system, those who are connected in the system, those who are more articulate or demanding, uh, they rise to the top. And this happens very insidiously. Uh, people in lower socioeconomic groups tend not to be as empowered uh, to advocate for themselves. And uh, that's, of course, in addition to all the systemic biases that uh, exist in the system already. So very practically speaking, when a family doctor phones me up and I'm in the middle of a busy day and I'm in between cases and they say, you got to move this person up on the list, they've been in my office four times complaining bitterly about their symptoms, I'm under tremendous pressure uh, to do that. And when I have no objective triage criteria to fall back on, no electronic wait list uh, system uh, to see what this will do to other patients uh, on my list, the easiest thing to do is to acquiesce. And this squeaky wheel system exists everywhere in Canada. Um, so I would submit that only the transparency that comes with electronic waitlist management systems and public reporting in real time of waitlists can work to reduce this widespread gaming of the lists and start to resolve some of these uh, vast inequities that we see. So as we turn our eye to digital solutions, and I'll, I'll wear my Novari hat here for a brief moment because this is one of their slides, it's instructive to imagine the series of transactions in a care pathway uh, with distinct components that are punctuated by weights. So we call these weight zero, weight one, weight two, weight three. And certainly some patients have more complex experiences than this, many more transactions. The arrows can go back and forth uh, and the patient can circle around uh, during, uh, through this system in several different ways. But the principles are, are largely the same. So wait zero is the time it takes to see uh, a primary care uh, provider. Uh, wait one is the time it takes to get a test or to see a specialist. Uh, wait two is the time from specialist to procedure or um, specialized service. And then wait three is the time from procedure uh, to rehab or to other resources needed to complete a recovery. Uh, so uh, each of these steps uh, creates an opportunity for a digital solution. Um, virtual care, 
e-consults, referral management, uh, triage and surgical and procedure waitlist management, uh, all of these tools exist and can be fit together to parallel the way that a patient moves through the system uh, in a typical experience. And all of these digital tools allow the patient to be safely navigated through the system without worrying about lost faxes uh, and in a way that ensures equity, in a way that, it, uh, that ensures um, uh, adherence to protocols around triage uh, uh, rules, in a way that improves appropriateness and manages performance around wait times and other quality tar uh, targets. Um, a non-digital environment breeds non-transparency, uh, just like that example I told you about in, in Mylin. Now consider something as simple as the central intake concept. Many of you will be familiar with this. It's a well-known model. It comes from basic queuing theory, uh, and it's employed by the, the, the retail sector um, uh, all the time. Think Walmart, so you enter a common line, uh, somebody at till 12, the blue light comes on, and then you go to the next available uh, person. Uh, uh, business understands that this increases the, the flow-through efficiency. So a common intake model um, where there's one queue and the person in the front goes to the next available provider maximizes efficiency and equity within any given, given uh, triage category. But too many surgical wait lists in Canada are at the individual surgeon level, uh, which is the model on the right. Now that model uh, deteriorates equity, it, it's opaque from a transparency perspective, so people in those lines don't know uh, what's going on in the other lines, and it increases uh, inefficiency. Now in the, in the common intake model, it's still possible to preserve uh, patient choice in the model, but it's with eyes wide open, because if a, a patient decides to choose a particular surgeon for whatever reason, they'll understand that that might mean that they're choosing to wait a little bit uh, longer. In the model on the right, patients have no idea uh, what their other options are. But in the common intake model, when it, we combine it in a proper electronic uh, environment, all the wait time data are available for all patients and all providers to see in real time. Um, so that has a tremendous uh, appeal for equity and efficiency and uh, resource utilization. So these digital tools, uh, like e-consult and virtual visits and waitlist management tools, uh, all deployed systematically across a patient's journey uh, can help to serve all the dimensions of quality, not just access to care. They can reduce the percentage of patients done outside the acceptable wait time. They can vet referrals through consistent and measurable triage criteria. They can help to reduce duplicate testing and the inefficiencies that come from uh, being on multiple lists at once. Uh, and they can enhance the customer service aspect of the care experience, which I've alluded to uh, earlier. So here's the current state for way too many of us. Uh, we still have a fax-based system uh, in too many places, in healthcare, in 2019. Uh, numerous primary care providers on the left uh, fax numerous kinds of specially specific forms to various providers. How many of you in primary care have like stacks of like 80 different forms because everybody likes a slightly different form? Some of these are lost. Um, some go to numbers that are one digit off. You know all the things that are wrong with the fax-based system. It is uh, far past time to disappear. Here's where we need to go. This is the end state. So no more faxes, but an electronic system that allows primary care to send in requests to a cloud where first people, and then eventually algorithms, refer patients appropriately to specialized clinics, to tests, to mental health and addictions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of this is managed and tracked electronically. Patients get to the right provider or providers at the right time. Appointments can be coordinated, wait times can be managed, duplication and inappropriate tests can be avoided, and the referral system can be performance managed. So this is from the, uh, <laughs> this is from the NHS, but uh, I don't know whether we would just spell it AX with no E or, you know, but ax the facts. Anyway, doesn't that feel good to look at that picture? So how are different weights for different services perceived? And I find this a very interesting area. So as you can imagine, no one wants to wait too long for cancer treatment. Uh, so here's, um, here are some data on tumor doubling time. So if you have prostate cancer over on the left with a tumor doubling time of 300 days, you know, you might be okay to wait for three or four weeks. But if you've got head and neck cancer and your tumor is going to double in size in four weeks, 
um, you don't have the luxury of uh, an inefficient system that may well forget you um, after a, a referral has been put in because of the lack of electronic resources and the oversight that that allows us to afford. Um, so you really don't want to be waiting for your cancer surgery or your chemo or your radiation. Uh, contrast that with hip and knee replacements, which are really more about pain and functionality and uh, for some uh, employment. Um, or contrast that with emergency department waits uh, or for imaging. Um, each of these invoke uh, different kinds of emotions, different kinds of fears, different kinds of frustrations, but they all share a need for professional and competent waitlist management, not papers on a desk waiting to go through fax machines. They need to be considered in the context as well of the broader system and the available resources in the system. So the imaging test might be to rule out cancer, for example, and in this context, the wait's every bit as important as the wait for the cancer treatment itself. Uh, the waits in the emergency department are directly related to hospital congestion. They signal that there's going to be surgical cancellations the next day, and someone who's waited for their hip replacement is going to have to wait a little bit longer. Um, so this uh, critical interdependency of all the pieces of the system are hidden from us because we don't have uh, a digitized, uh, linked experience that help us to see and manage what's happening in real time. So it's been my experience um, that patients usually don't mind waiting. Oh, this is maybe a bit controversial as well. They don't mind waiting if they're confident that it's safe to wait, if they're confident that they haven't been forgotten, if they have confidence in the integrity of the triage, and if there's good communication and good concurrent care uh, during the wait. But you can't do any of this with a fax and paper-based system with no connectivity to other uh, parts of the system. So a suite of digital tools uh, helps to weave together the series of transactions that collectively comprise a care experience and can fit that experience into the larger context of the system uh, and its collective resources. So that's what will help us to achieve the confidence that's required to have patients uh, wait comfortably and safely. It perhaps isn't so much about eliminating wait times as it is managing them better. So it doesn't take a big step beyond all of this to imagine how a mature electronic referral system would work uh, for any number of typical clinical care pathways, including all the ones here, uh, from primary care, which is the medical home for patients, uh, a coordinated approach facilitated by digital tools can help patients navigate uh, through all these experiences and more. Uh, not just the traditional surgical-based pathways um, on which a lot of these tools have been built, but pathways in mental health and addictions, for example, in diabetes or other typical chronic disease pathways. And we know that uh, these types of uh, pathways um, uh, are representative of the care experience of most of Canada's uh, patients. Now this has to be one of the most commonly seen slides in any health policy talk. Uh, this is the burning platform. Uh, Canada ranks low every year in the Commonwealth Fund survey of 11 peer countries uh, and on access uh, we just simply do uh, a terrible job. And uh, this is meant to be kind of uh, funny but, um, but one of the myths of the Canadian healthcare system is that long wait times is simply the price we have to pay in order to have a universal health care system, uh, in order to protect that Canadian value uh, of, of universal access. But this, is, of course, is false. So good, cheap, fast. Um, uh, this slide makes the argument you can have two out of three. You know, you can't, you can't have all three. But I think if we, if we look at this in the context of health care, I think it's fair to say we're pretty good. Um, we deliver episodes of care that are very good in the moment. Um, when you finally get the care. But we're neither cheap nor fast. Uh, and I would argue that the solutions that have been offered over the last 20 years have provided more capacity, but they've not really fundamentally changed the way that we do things. And the result of that has been that we've just managed to tread water. Uh, we, we're looking after more people, but we haven't really improved uh, our processes. So digital tools will help us get better value for our dollar. They'll shorten wait times by fundamentally changing the way that we do things. And in my view, this can't happen fast enough um, because not only do our patients deserve better, but I think uh, Canadian taxpayers deserve better, better value for their money. 
And I wanted to divert just a little bit into some of the HQO work um, because I uh, chair their Quality Standards Committee, and I think this is another important angle uh, on access to care. Um, we believe uh, that an integrated approach to standards uh, matters. Uh, and we've worked to develop quality standards that apply to all professions and all care settings uh, that set out the evidence and the data, as well as the barriers and enablers to improvement uh, in a concise package. And so together with patients and families who play a major role in the development of these standards, uh, we have decided to take on unwanted clinical practice variation by seeking the best evidence and the best practices and bringing them to a space that's accessible to patients and the care teams looking after them. So, um, and I think you'll see where this ties into wait times. When we start to look at some of these um, clinical practice variation stats. So here's the uh, emergency department visits for schizophrenia by region in Ontario. Um, and you have to ask yourself, why does Perry Sound see so few schizophrenia patients in the emergency department and uh, Rainy River and others see so many? Um, why is there such a huge uh, variation in Ontario? And I think you can see this creates an opportunity for improvement in, in practice. Uh, here's another example, hysterectomies uh, for abnormal uterine bleeding across the province. Um, in, if you're in the Northeast, uh, you are more than twice as likely to get a hysterectomy uh, versus if you live in Toronto Central. Why is that? Surely uh, the patients don't differ that much. Uh, what about this? Uh, the percentage of long-term uh, care home residents, 65 years or older, who are using antipsychotic medication by individual nursing home varies from zero to 75% uh, in Ontario. And we all know the problems that arise from antipsychotic medication use and the impact that that has on the rest of the system. So um, the issue with unwarranted clinical practice variation not only means that not enough Ontarians are receiving evidence-based care, it also directly impacts access to care for others. So inappropriate care for some directly leads to denied or delayed care for others. And so we developed a suite of guides. Uh, these are still in development. Many are still in the hopper, uh, informing providers and patients about what constitutes best evidence. We have a clinical guide, recommendations for adoption, a patient guide, an information and data brief, and infographics that are suitable for tweeting. And so we've covered everything from heart failure to um, uh, opioid addictions uh, to access to mental health care. Um, and uh, one of the uh, more recent ones is transitions in care, best practices around transitions in care. You're also aware of the Choosing Wisely movement, uh, movements. You all know Wendy, uh, who championed this in Canada, uh, which aims to reduce low-value testing and procedures. Um, and in my mind, also highlights uh, another solution to improving access to care uh, because in most cases more appropriate care leads to efficiencies that will increase uh, access to care for everybody. So I think um, to come to an end, I, I think there are four things we can do, four things we can amplify to reduce wait times and perhaps more importantly make the wait time experience safer and more equitable. And the first is common waitlist. Um, but I'll be frank, uh, getting past the uh, long wait list as a marker of prestige thing is a big one. Uh, so uh, surgeons who have a long wait list see this as a, as a marker of excellence uh, and uh, have been the single biggest barrier to the establishment of common wait lists. Uh, second, uh, we need modern electronic tools like e-consult, virtual visits, and an electronic wait list triage and management solution um, to replace our facts-based system and to help us appreciate the critical interdependencies in all parts of the system in real time. We need to embed appropriateness culture into our triage and treatment protocols and groups like HQO and Choosing Wisely provide us with packages of solutions that can help. And then finally we need to commit to more transparency and public reporting. Uh, patients and taxpayers uh, deserve to know about the performance of their system, and that can only come with public reporting. I didn't realize those toggled down, sorry. So patients who do need to wait though, um, communication, communication, communication. This is where our professional responsibility I think has to 
um, uh, you know, come to the fore. We need to have respectful language. We can't be mad at patients because they're mad at us because uh, their wait is so long. It needs to be personalized wherever possible. Uh, there need to be formal and informal touch points during the wait. Um, and we have to be transparent, we have to be honest, and we have to be authentic. So thank you very much. Okay, so we have a little bit of time for questions. Um, anybody over here? Right there, I'll start up at the back here. First, I want to say thanks for uh, really doing the job of comprehensively um, visualizing the, the challenges in the system. A couple of quick comments. Um, I'm a product manager, and uh, in healthcare, and also a healthcare specialist, and in healthcare, we design in weight. Yeah. Design service, we design in weight. As a product manager, that's an evil. Like, that's just an evil. You don't, Amazon, and I know people are immediately going to say healthcare is unique, never believe that. But um, every other industry designs out weight. And they do value stream thinking to visualize, to complete journey, and see where the weightings and the handoffs and the value deprecation happens. Healthcare has to think along those lines, product, value stream, visualizing weight, visualizing the, the care pathways properly. Uh, the other thing I would say is, and, and fundamentally is, this is not a technology issue. In every other industry, there are technologies that can easily be leveraged for a lot of the problems in healthcare. It is a mindset thing. If we think waiting is waste, from a lean perspective, from every other perspective, think that way, design that way, operate that way, practice that way. Your thoughts? I think that's a, it's very interesting. I think from my perspective, um, you know, there, there are certainly inefficiencies that, that come from weights, but uh, from my perspective, it's the customer service experience and the safety implications that result from the fact that we and the patients believe that they're in a system. When in fact, when we finish with an episode of care, um, the, the handoff to the next is, is very sloppy and incomplete. The information doesn't go with it, and they sort of start all over again. So they have all of these opportunities for uh, mistakes and errors and bad outcomes uh, to occur. And it, it's at these transition points where all the inefficiencies are born and the, the negative perceptions are, are born. Um, and, and that's where I think um, some of these uh, electronic solutions can, can help because it'll assist with the handoff. But also within an episode of care, uh, it helps us to understand what the universe of resources is out there um, and um, uh, get us away from the sense that, you know, I know one particular exologist and that's who I always refer to because that's who I went to medical school with and that's who I'm referring this patient to uh, without knowing that there's an equally good solution um, that's just as easily accessible, but, that, but that's invisible to me. So to me, it's the fragmentation and the siloism uh, that, that's the problem. Other questions? Okay. Um, so, Chris, as I walk down here, um, how do we get the system to start offering choice as a patient, right, or to their patients, where they're associated with a certain hospital and they only make the, the referrals back to that specific hospital or people that are associated with that hospital when there's other options or other choice? How do we force that system, or not necessarily force, but how do we make sure that they're offering that? Well, I think if we were to commit ourselves to common waitlist where that made sense, um, I think that would largely um, develop, uh, that, that transparency would, would begin to come and patients would be aware that they had a choice. But one very interesting experience with the uh, cardiac care network in the early days is that there was a mandate and we had to sign off on the bottom of the form that we had informed patients that there were other places that, that they could be sent to. And collectively, only about 1% of patients elected to go somewhere else. So I think that just adds, um, uh, you know, um, evidence to my contention that if patients understand that, it's okay, that we believe it's safe for them to wait 
and we reduce the weight to an inconvenience, not, a, not an unsafe inconvenience, and not a quality of care um, compromising uh, inconvenience, they, they much prefer to be, to be closer to home. Um, but there are other examples where uh, the surgeon in the next office, uh, you know, is, is able to get the case done perfectly well with the same outcomes. Um, and uh, that's where I think common wait lists will expose, I think, um, some of the uh, siloism and the inefficiencies that come from it. So actually my question is very similar to that, which is, you know, there, it, what we're talking about is a health informatics project of implementing the system or whatever the system may be. And in that case, there's people, there's process, and then there's a the technology. And like my uh, other technologist uh, said in the background, uh, in the back there, um, the technology part is not hard. And I think hopefully most of us sitting in this room agree that it's necessary. Then comes the people in the process of integrating and implementing in all primary and all specialist kind of offices that don't have the IT infrastructure that a hospital would, mm. um, and what that is like. And then the people aspect of if your physician tells you, I know the surgeon, he's a great guy, I think you should go with this surgeon, and you know, then you get the common pool choice. What, what will people do? Will they trust their physician who they have a relationship with? Or will they go for the kind of cue, the, the common cue? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, uh, there's a lot of... Um you know, they always say, beware of the nice surgeon, right? The, surgeons, the surgeon is nice because he or she may not be that technically good. Um, <laughs> I hope there's no surgeons in the crowd. Um, yeah, I think, you know, part of it is a desire to kind of protect patients and providers from our own inherent biases, which I think we all know probably don't have any, any basis in truth, right? We, we prefer somebody because we like the relationship with that person or the way they treated us. Not that those things aren't important. Um, but, um, but there's a lot of, uh, I think, for lack of a better word, sort of misguided preferences for, for reasons that I think should be explored in a more evidence-based way. The fact of the matter is, I think, that there will be some pathways where um, patient preference will be very, very uh, important, and they, and they will select somebody and wait longer. Um, but there will be other uh, care pathways where it, it won't matter as much. It's more of a, again, poor choice of, you, of words, but more of an assembly line procedural type thing. Um, so uh, again, not to disparage ophthalmologists, but you know, cataracts have become pretty straightforward. Um, I would venture to guess that most patients probably don't care who their, who their surgeon is. Um, but for somebody who's having you know, complex cancer surgery, they build a relationship with uh, a certain care team, it may be very important for them to you know, continue that therapeutic relationship. So um, I think uh, a, a, a common cue system, I think, allows us to preserve that patient choice where it makes sense, um, but it also allows people to have that experience in a much more eyes-open way. So they know, um, I could have this a little faster over here, but you know, uh, you're, you're going to be safe and uh, you're just going to wait a little bit longer and, and you can have the, this person of your choice. Uh, it, it's all about just o openness, I think. Um, over, hi. Um, building on that, um, I'm sure you know the case of the Martini Clinic where they do uh, prostatectomies and because they were looking at the actual outcomes by physician, they were able to, re they realized that one was getting far superior outcomes than mm. the other. Right. And I think rather than everybody wanting that guy, what they did was they made everybody else as good as that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and everything that you're saying is about data. So, and I think um, I wouldn't care as much about what my GP said if there was a public respected source that I could go to and do my own research. Um, who should own the data or, or collect the data? Or who should we be advocating to to for this to happen, because it seems to be the single most important thing to, in the shift to value-based healthcare, to e-referrals and outcomes and monitoring and everything. Yeah, outcomes is always the tough one because of course this is resisted by providers and sometimes with good reason, right? So in the early days of cardiac surgery, there was a lot of resistance to reporting uh, individual surgeon outcomes publicly. Um, 
uh, Intel, uh, they were able to develop a very sophisticated system to account for all the differences in patient characteristics, at which point um, the, the outcomes were amazingly identical across the province, every single cardiac surgeon. And I think once that confidence was reached, the, the, the sharing of those outcomes became a little bit uh, easier. Um, they're still not shared uh, with the public at an individual um, surgeon level, but I think we can still say with confidence, like I tell my patients, it really doesn't matter which surgeon you go to. I have, I have very good confidence because I've seen the, the uh, anonymized data that, that all of our surgeons have, uh, have very good outcomes. Um, so I, I think the resistance is really from the, the profession. Um, you know, we, we have to um, sort of transition away from uh, a fear of being evaluated and having our outcomes uh, subject to public scrutiny. Um, but in fairness, it has to come in a way where we have, um, you know, a lot of confidence uh, in, in those data. Um, I see a generational shift in, in that. Um, people of my generation and older uh, are much more reluctant to sort of be um, subject to that level of scrutiny. Um, uh, younger people seem much more um, uh, amenable to that, that kind of scrutiny. So I think as, the, as those barriers come down, um, I think we'll start to see more and more um, public reporting of those kinds of uh, outcomes and other system um, uh, metrics. Great. Hi, over here. Um, thanks for your uh, remarks this morning. I guess the, um, as you know, Ontario is going through a major transformation with the implementation of OHTs, um, largely to address some of the things that you spoke to about the difficulties with handoffs of care and trying to make for a better patient experience. But at the same time, you know, there's a risk that then the, there may be more difficulties being able to move or access services between OHTs if you need to see a particular specialist. And I'm wondering if there's one or two things that you would recommend as, how, as to how to best avoid um, that becoming a new way of segmenting or, or um, siloing the system in a different way and so that we can still make sure that we're achieving all of the um, strategic and, and uh, service uh, objectives that we're trying for. Yeah, I think some of those same concerns um, were expressed when the when the lens were created. You know, these artificial borders that maybe disrupted traditional referral patterns or or care pathways. Um, I, I think uh, most of the people involved in the early stages of OHTs uh, would would be quick to uh, suggest that these aren't borders. They're they're meant to be sort of collectives that uh, help the vast majority of patients to have a coordinated care experience, but uh, but not to disrupt um, you know un unusual forays out. Uh, across the borders um, into places where the service may be provided better or uh, faster or uh, maybe it's uh, uniquely available somewhere else. So um, there, there were a few, uh, you may recall in the early days of the LINs, a, a few examples where there were attempts to kind of keep people within a LIN and not treat them in another LIN and that was very quickly quashed. So hopefully the lessons we learned from that would be applied to the OHTs. Uh, we have time for one last question, any more? With that, then, thank you very much, Chris Simpson. Thank you. So um, our next breakfast with the Chiefs is on October 8th. It's uh, with the uh, International Foundation of Integrated Care, uh, and that'll be at Rotman. So hopefully we'll see you then. Other than that, have a good morning.